1: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, historian Greg Jenner talks about his book A Million Years in a Day, a curious history of everyday life from the Stone Age to the Phone Age. Greg Jenner is the historical consultant to CBBC's multi-award-winning Horrible Histories, Horrible Histories with Stephen Fry, and various Horrible Histories spin-offs, as well as contributing sketches and co-writing Stephen Fry's links. Over the past four years, he has been solely responsible for the factual accuracy of nearly 1,000 comedy sketches with subject matter that spans the entirety of human history. Greg studied at the University of York, and after dropping the initial plans for a life in academia, has worked on historical documentaries and dramas for the past seven years. And Greg's first book, which we're going to be talking about today, is "A Million Years in a Day: A Curious History of Everyday Life from the Stone Age to the Phone Age." Greg, thank you very much for coming on Little Atoms Festival. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's a Pleasure to have you. So, I want to talk first of all before we get onto the book about what does a, a historical consultant on TV actually do? That's
3: a good question. There aren't many of us about, really. We're quite a rare breed. I suppose what we're trying to do is we're kind of the compromise merchants Mm -hmm. in that we have to liaise with the the key talent who are making a programme. And you have to advise them on what would be the best thing to do in terms (laughs) of communicating historical truths. And they will then say, yeah, I don't want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) You're ruining my really lovely drama. And so quite often what you're doing, I suppose, is trying to find ways of saying well can you try this instead of that could you maybe could we soften this could we try and be a little bit more subtle here because really obviously my job is to try and improve the quality of historical Mm -hmm. uh, understanding in a show try and make it more, more accurate more reliable more closer to the truth but obviously their job is to make a really interesting engaging entertaining Program and if it's a drama, then you obviously want it to be really entertaining. And even if it's a documentary, you still want it to be watchable. You know, no oh. one wants to watch a really dull <laughs> sixty-minute documentary.
2: I was going to say, like you've answered it really by calling it compromise. You know, how much sway do, do you have? Because obviously, as well as just somebody not wanting to change their lovely words or whatever, there's budget constraints oh, yeah. and things. I mean, when did they? When did? telly start thinking that this was an important thing to do? Because it's obviously not always been the case. No, that's a very interesting question. I think television had a relatively early relationship with
3: expertise back in the 60s. Certainly back then, the history programmes were very much fronted by proper professors Mm -hmm. with moustaches who would sit there in their tweed and they would, you know, very much talk to you about the Neolithic. Mm -hmm. And what then later on happened is the emergence of ITV, the emergence of commercial channels, you start to see the the move towards having people who are quite good at presenting stuff, presenting stuff. Mm -hmm. So you then move towards professional presenters being handed scripts written for them by researchers who've read some books about history. In terms of historical consultancy... I mean in the 80s there were quite a lot of history movies that had consultants working on them but Hollywood often didn't really bother with them and also would use that as a weapon to a certain extent they'd mm-hmm. say our film has a historical consultant but they wouldn't have listened to them they'd have yeah. paid them some money and then said just stand there and look legitimate us you know, make us look like we've taken this seriously <laughs> we, we haven't. and certainly I think in the 2000s we've seen I think a much bigger intake of, of experts advising on dramas and movies now so I know a lot of people who have advised on BBC costume dramas, mm-hmm. um, you know, if it's Jane Austen style stuff or if it's Wolf Hall or what, you know, much more common now. And the good thing is, generally speaking, the person brought onto that project is usually an expert in that period. I'm a bit different in that I'm not an expert in a... Mm-hmm period. I'm a generalist, really. I mean, I trained as a medievalist, but I kind of do a bit of everything. So my training actually is in a slightly different aspect. I train really more as a public historian. And that's a very boring way of saying that what I try to do is mediate the much more complicated elements of of what academic history is and find ways to communicate that to as broader an audience as possible. And so I'm interested in the conversation between the very austere, intellectualised world of historians, which is very important. It's a very... Mm -hmm. You know, it's obviously... History is a field, uh, a discipline, where people are desperately seeking to try and find out what happened in the past. It's a a rigorous, intellectual discipline full of great ideas and arguments and debates. And then, of course, you've got telly, which is not really very good at that at all. Telly is much more superficial and a a bit more of a... Mm -hmm. To some extent, you could say TV is more of a distraction or a pastime than it is an actual intellectual pursuit. And so, as a public historian, you try to find the ways of of bringing the difficult to the many and say, OK, this is really important and, and we're going to try and distill it down for you as, as simple as possible.
2: But history itself, the, the study of history itself, has also followed that. He you know, describes the idea of you know the old telly historians being yeah. someone like you know, Kenneth Clark or yeah. whatever in Tweed, and now it's supposed to be a lot less patrician. I mean, I'm sure in a lot of ways it still is but the study of history itself has also undergone a change over, over recent years so what is it what does it mean to be a historian now well I think you're right I think
3: there's been a, a sea change certainly I've noticed it on Twitter there's so many what we call ourselves Twitter historians uh, there's probably a better pun but I mean, that's the one we seem to have settled <laughs> on to historians I don't know there are so many and a lot of them actually are not not necessarily even that young you know there's loads of PhD students and, and early career researchers but there's actually a lot of very eminent professors and, and people in the middle of their career who are on Twitter and having a brilliant time blogging about their subject and engaging with the public. That, I think, is, is the result of about ten years or so of, of a kind of attitude shift in universities. I think there was definitely that ivory tower problem before, and I think that may have been more the actual universities themselves being quite scared. Perhaps, I'm not sure. I don't know if it was historical community being quite nervous. I believe Simon Sharma found a very difficult initially when he made the history of Britain mm-hmm. a good fifteen years ago. I think initially a lot of people looked at him and said, What are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing on telly? I mean that's not that's not what we do. You know, we're sort great. of what happened to Carl Sagan as well. Yeah, that's exactly. The science world Precisely, and, yeah. you know, Carl Sagan stepped out of that bubble and said, Well, you know, there's 200 million Americans over there, and they want to know about the cosmos, and they go tell them. And so I think there's been a big change in, in history now where a lot of people are saying, OK, you know what, actually this matters, this is relevant, this is important, how can I try and bring what I do to the public? And some of that I think is probably universities saying, you know what, you need to justify your salaries, and you need to justify mm-hmm. our existence, you know, we, we need to be front-facing, we are a public institution, we derive some funding from the government... So maybe there's a kind of a, a an angle there that is, is more to do with accountability and, and just being part of the wider community. But also mm-hmm. I think certainly the majority of the historians I speak to, they're so passionate about their subject. They love it, they, they think it's extraordinary. Why wouldn't they have dedicated their life to it? And they want to share it with people. And I think perhaps before they weren't really allowed to, and now they can. So they're on Twitter, they're on Facebook, they're on telly, they're on the radio. They, they're out there talking about what it is they do. And obviously my job to a certain extent sometimes is to point them in the right direction or, or ask them for help when I'm doing a project and bring them on board so it's, it's really nice there's a lovely Twitter community in fact all the people who fact check my book mm. all, all 12 historians I all met them all on Twitter
2: but also there's a, an emphasis on I guess the idea we think of history as being or any sort of study as being objective yeah and there's much more focus nowadays on how that sort of objectivity can interact with the subjective experiences of the people that are being studied. I mean, obviously, in a slightly, you know, slightly more nuanced way than history is always written by the winners, you know, mm. that, that old canard. Kind of history is inevitably going to be written by somebody with a particular perspective and also, a mod, you know, modern ideas and a modern take. And they're looking at something that happened a long time ago when people were very different and thought very differently from us.
3: What's really interesting, I think, to a certain extent is to remember that history and the past are different. The past is what happened and it's gone and it doesn't change. It remains unknown to us and also it, it, immutable. It won't, it won't change, it won't evolve, it won't be tweaked. You can't mm. get at it. History, of course, is constantly changing. And that's, that's a strange thing to get across to us sometimes because mm. we use the word history interchangeably with the past. Yeah. We talk about things that happened in history, historical events. But actually, history is more of the pursuit of knowledge so it's like science, really. History mm-hmm. is, is more the discipline by which you try and understand what's going on. So historians rewrite history constantly. We are constantly doing it. Every time you set down to write a new book or put forward a new theory, you are rewriting history. It mm-hmm. doesn't mean you're rewriting the past, because you can't change the past. Mm-hmm. That's gone. That's locked. But we have this problem. We're trying to get back to the past. That's what we do. We're trying to... Work out effectively what happened, and why, and the, you know what were the ramifications. And in that sense, I tend to use this very clunky analogy. I say we're a bit like Columbo, you know, instead of a TV detective, mm-hmm. we're like we're kind of Sherlock Holmes. Really, the problem we have is we don't have any witnesses. We don't get to interrogate anyone, I and mean, you don't get a confession either. At the end of the episode, you know, Columbo would always be like, <laughs> "Why did you do the murder?" And they're like, "Well, he slept with my sister." We don't get that in history. You can yell all you want at Alexander the Great, or you can dig up Richard III, you mm-hmm. can have him right in front of you, but he won't tell you if he murdered the princes in the tower. Mm-hmm. So there's an inherent frustration that you don't get, I think, in science perhaps, with history, mm-hmm. is that there is no right answer at the end of the day. So what that gives you, of course, is a discipline predicated on people just arguing all the time, <laughs> because you never can go... Well, right, case solved, we proved it, done, you know, done-dusted. But the tremendously vibrant, healthy thing about history is exactly that at the same mm-hmm. time, is that every generation rewrites its history based on, as you said, the things that it's interested in now. And so mm-hmm. I think history in some regards is more of a mirror image to our own society than yeah. it is about the past. I think you can say so much about a society based on the kind of history they wrote and read at the time. You know, I must, I'd probably call myself a social historian if I mm-hmm. had to label myself. And social history is a very modern... It was sort of invented in the nineteen fifties, more or less. You know, with the history of the working classes, and, and you know these, these books that started to look at the impact of the mills and the industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. And that's a byproduct of Marxism and the idea that actually history is not a vast. It's not just this huge tapestry of great men with mm-hmm. lovely moustaches doing great things, leading great wars. Actually, history is about enormous amounts of people being party to and and part of gradual change sometimes sometimes reverse change where things went backwards sometimes Mm -hmm. nothing changed at all but actually that is what history is really it's about billions and billions of people being part of this huge ocean of stuff and so as a social historian you start to go okay all right well that's interesting because i always thought it was 1066 and Magna Carta, but actually maybe it's more about loom workers Mm -hmm. in the (laughs) 1820s manchester and i think now there's a new generation of scholars who are interested in the history of sexuality and uh, what you might call queer theory, you know, the history of homosexuality mm-hmm. or, or, um, or lesbianism or bisexuality or asexuality. Uh, we're interested in the history of um, people with disabilities. We're interested in the history of deafness. Or mm-hmm. of. Uh, there's a historian who's interested in the history of emotions, who I talk to on Twitter sometimes. You know, the history of emotions is, a, on the one hand, you kind of think... Well, what does that mean but yeah. actually of course it's one of the most human things about mm-hmm. you know emotions are so important to our life of course so why not study them why not create a category of Study that is the history of emotion.
2: But it's also one of those things that's so familiar to us that it it seems weird to think that people might have behaved differently or experienced emotions differently in the past.
3: Yeah, and I think the problem is is that sometimes we forgot to ask. Mm -hmm. We forgot to even sort of step back and say, I wonder if people in the 16th century cared as much about their kids as we do. Mm -hmm. And you go and look at it and you realize, yeah, they do, of course they do, they love their kids. But their attitudes perhaps to punishment might be different or maybe their attitudes to infant mortality might be different because so many children died of early mm-hmm. uh, early diseases that perhaps they had a coping mechanism to deal with that perhaps it was so common to see dead children that you just found a way of processing you know we don't know so you, you go and you interrogate the sources you start to ask these questions but you're absolutely right that there are some things that we, we take for granted sometimes mm-hmm. or we don't stop to think about. That was sort of one of the reasons I wrote the book, really, was that i I got so many examples of people coming up to me and saying, people in the Stone Age were a bit stupid, weren't they? Why didn't they have cars? <laughs> yeah. And you think, well, <laughs> Well, I mean, lots of reasons, but actually they weren't stupid. They just didn't, they hadn't got around to cars yet. They were just like us. They were as intellectually capable as us. They had all of the biological and physical capabilities that we do. They had language and the ability to love and mourn. They could laugh and smile. They could paint. They could do poetry. They were absolutely human, but they just hadn't got around to gas or (laughs) combustion engines yet. You know, they were still working out how to do shoes. So one of the inspiring motivating quests I suppose behind trying to get this book off the Mm ground was thinking okay what what would people in the stone age make of our lives and what would we make of their lives you know and and how did we get here from there what's what's the journey that takes you from a million years ago all the way up to now and is there something innately human in every society or did every society kind of Mm -hmm. reinvent the wheel so to speak
0: from the 9th to the 15th of February 2015 Resonance 104.4 FM hosts its annual fundraising week You can support us by attending one of our events, bidding in the auctions, or by making a donation. We aim to raise £50,000 this year, which will allow us to trial a DAB service, overhaul our website, and extend the range of our FM broadcast beyond central London. If every listener gave £1, we'd have secured our future for the next decade. For more details, listen at 104.4 FM in London, or go to fundraiser.resonance.fm.
2: I'm Irving Finkel, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So the book has a a million years in the day, it's called, and it has a a conceit, an idea. Mm. Tell us what that is.
3: Well, uh, structurally, the book is set around a modern Saturday. So it's effectively a kind of day in your life, Mm. um, a modern Saturday in a modern Western world. And each chapter is a different subject. And each chapter is sort of a different hour of the day, to a certain extent, not quite, but you wake up in bed, and the first thing you do, of course, is you look at your alarm clock. Mm-hmm. That's what we all do. You look at the clock and you desperately hope it's wrong, and you think, "Oh, I get two more hours sleep," but of course it never is wrong. And so it's about the history of timekeeping. So chapter one begins straight away with how do you tell the time? Because mm-hmm. it's one of those questions that people don't really ask very often, yeah. but actually it's so integral to our life. We are obsessed with time. We mm-hmm. all walk around with little watches and boxes of electronic timekeeping, and our lives are governed by the architecture of time. It, it never stops for us. And yet, actually, time is one of those weird things that humans have invented. Mm-hmm. It doesn't exist independently. It does, in, a, in, a, in terms of physics. You know, mm-hmm. you know, in, a, in a universal sense, it's a, it's a constant thing that moves forward, whatever. I, I don't know the physics. I'm not Brian Cox. But time is there, but we measure it through our own cultural ways of doing yeah. so. And what was really interesting is every society in history has struggled with telling the time. and. Um, they've come at it from different points of views and, and sometimes they've used different technologies and sometimes they've used different rubric. So we have the 24-hour day, which feels modern because we use it every day and why wouldn't it feel modern? But it's based on the mathematics of Babylonia from 4,500 years ago because they had a duodecimal mathematical system. Mm-hmm. Their maths was based on the number 12 rather than 10 because they thought 12 was the numerical cornerstone of the universe. Mm-hmm. They saw 12 moons across the year. And they thought 12 was more divisible by uh, you know it's divisible by 2, 3, 4, 6 and 12 itself whereas 10 obviously divisible by 2, 5 and 10 but it's not as versatile so Mm. for them they thought 12 well this is clearly the key number so they had 60 minute hours and 60 seconds and 24 hours in a day Mm -hmm. and for us to sort of be carrying that on Four and a half, five thousand years on, kind of weirdly clunky. You sort of think, well, have we not invented a better system than that? Are we still... Well,
2: people have invented worse systems, <laughs> certainly, haven't they? People have not always followed that That's the thing. 24-hour clock system. That's Let's right. talk about some of those other weird so, systems.
3: So the interesting thing is, is that, I mean, in the early days, the, the other thing is what defines a day and a night? Day and night. Yeah. One of the things I love about the English language is that we have so many words for so many things. And yet we really struggle with basics sometimes. Yes. So we, have, we use the word day to mean two different things. It means both 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. But it also means the bit where you've got the light outside. The opposite of which is night. Mm-hmm. So we have this one word that means two completely opposite things, and it's really, really confusing. But there is a word. There is a word. It's one of my favourite words. It's called ephemeron, um, and that means twenty-four hours. And it's um, it's a lovely Greek word meaning day, night, mm-hmm. day and night, literally. But other languages they get on fire. They have the Dutch, I think, have etmaal. So that lots and lots of other languages have this idea of a twenty-four hour day yeah. in opposition to the daylight hours (laughs) but we don't so immediately we kind of get stuck by (laughs) having not enough words to describe what you're trying to do and the Romans struggled with the same, too. They, the Romans tried to label the daylight hours against the kind of 24-hour day itself. So they had a civil day meant 24 hours, and they had a, a natural day was the daylight. And then they changed it in the 7th century, and then they changed it back again. So people have always been doing that, changing the labelling of things. And then in the 1700s, right at the end of that 1700s, we had the French Revolution. And it starts in 1789, and it, it is a very complicated thing. I mean, you can't describe it as just, like... Poor people versus rich people. That's not what revolutions are. Part of the revolution actually, really, is this. There's a sort of intellectual energy behind it as well. This, this sense of empirical radicalism derived from Enlightenment philosophy. Mm-hmm. There's an awful lot of people in Europe at the time stroking their chins and sort of saying, oh, we should be, you know, we should be more modern. We should reject the Catholic ways of medieval Europe. We should be people like um, Voltaire and Jean-Jacques Rousseau." So when they get into power, the revolutionaries they chop off. Louis the head and they, they get rid of all the aristocracy and they, they murder an awful lot of other people as well. And they're about three years into the revolution and they finally decide in seventeen ninety three that they're gonna try and reform the calendar as well. Mm-hmm. They're gonna say, Right, come on, we're gonna get rid of let's get rid of all the tradition, let's start again effectively from year zero. We'll have a new calendar. So they invent a decimal calendar and a decimal timekeeping system. So they have a ten month year and they rename all the months after um February's called Fonteurs, which means the windy month, because mm-hmm. it's quite windy. And they decide that the day will now be 10 hours long and it will have 10 hours. And then each hour will have 100 minutes and each minute will be 100 seconds. And so they bring in this decimal calendar system, which is madness. (laughs) And everyone sort of goes, what's happening? I don't understand what's happening. Why are you doing this to us? It's an idea first advanced by a guy called Jean-Charles de Borda. It comes in for about a year and a half. That is amazing (laughs) that they did have a go. They really had a go. They really went for it. Um, and people were walking about with special adapted clocks, you know, watches with like two different faces—one mm-hmm. with old time and new time—and you know, you look at the clock on the wall; it would have three hands on it—one for the normal hour, one for—and so the French struggled with this for about a year and a half, eighteen months or fourteen months, depending on which calendar you were using. And then they went, "Oh, you know what, guys? This is not working. This is a disaster. Let's just ditch it." So this this experiment is abandoned. And it's really interesting, as you think you kind of assume that as people go forward in history, they kind of get better at stuff. Yeah. But the French Revolution shows that a really good idea in theory can just be a nightmare to apply mm. in practice. And actually, 24-hour clock, as ancient as it is, it sort of works. So we'll just kind of stick with it. So it's a compromise.
2: You briefly alluded to this, but when is night? When is the morning? Because our mm. morning, you know, we know 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And yet midnight means the middle of the night. Yeah. So our day does not start when it is light, which you would think would be the obvious.
3: It is. It is weird. It's the Roman system that we kind of used. The Romans divided their day up into two sets of twelve hours, and we've kind of carried that on. But other societies they were more interested in dusk and dawn mm-hmm. than than a sort of midnight cutoff point. And so they certainly in Orthodox Judaism, for example, the Shabbat begins when the sun goes down on the Friday night. Mm-hmm. So it effectively runs through the end of one day into the next day so it, it, or at least in terms of what we'd call an administrative day now and the Babylonians uh, similarly kind of had an interesting attitude to it. the Egyptians divided their day into four sections they had a ten hour window and then they had kind of half light they kind of called dusk and dawn like this sort of mini period so dusk yeah. and dawn got its own little window
2: and that was just like an hour
3: or something, yeah exactly yeah. so they kind of They were like, hey, the days... What you did then, in those
2: hours? Well, yeah, so you're kind of looking up and going, hey, it's a little bit dark.
3: It's not quite dark, but it's a little bit dark, so I'm just going to hang out. So every society kind of mucked about with it a little bit. And and even there was a system in in medieval Italy called Florentine reckoning, where, again, it wasn't the same system that we have now. And so timekeeping is this kind of problem of what you do with time, where you draw the boundaries... Because nature itself just keeps going, it just is unrelenting, it just... The sun rises, it sets, it it sets, it rises, it's just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And so you have to kind of go, right, now, stop now, this this bit, here, this is midnight. And so as you say, we have this linguistic trip hazard in English, where we say, I've been up all night partying. And the problem is, the day begins at zero, 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 you know, at one second. That is the new day. So you haven't Mm -hmm. been up all night partying, or maybe you have, but it's now a new day. So... It's funny how much we struggle with language mm. and, and the actual administration of time itself, the way in which you actually go about trying to set rules on when stuff starts and stops. And the amazing example of this, the thing that I really like telling people about, is the fact that we were still struggling with this in the 20th century. We were still mm. having major issues with it, particularly in America, because in about 1907, 1908, there was a guy called William Willett who invented daylight saving time, really. He wasn't the first to come up with the idea there was actually a, a chap from New Zealand, a New Zealander called uh, George Hudson, I think and he'd come up with the idea but no one listened to him they, they kind of ignored him so then William Willett independently came up with the idea while he was out riding in Kent I think he was he was on his horse and it was very very early in the morning and no one was up mm-hmm. and it was a beautiful sunny day and he sort of noticed and said everybody's
2: missing this everyone's (laughs) missing
3: this lovely day you know I'm out having a lovely time and all this wasted daylight I wonder if there's a way of preserving this light for people when they're awake and what he suggested was much more complicated really he wanted to restore the hour of light by moving the clocks back in the summer like we do but he wanted to do it in tiny increments Uh, so you had to move your clocks eight times a year (laughs) so that was quite elaborate and he was widely mocked for this. He was derided as a loony. In fact, he became a, a punchline. You know, he was sort of willy it William, was like the end of a joke. He went from being this very respectable man, this English businessman, to being... Scientists you were know, furious at him. They were incredibly angry letters written to the Times by these eminent scientists saying, this man is insane, we should never listen to him. But I think people were responding to it because in the 19th century people had really struggled with timekeeping because... Obviously, the sun rises and sets at different times, depending on where you are in, in the
2: country. Well, we should, we should probably say that, you know, we've been talking about Eon's long battle to tell time. Yeah. But it's also relatively late that it mattered. Like, yeah. know, for most of human history, yeah. it's not been that big a deal. As long as we could watch the season, that was okay. But mm. it's only once we get to the Industrial Revolution, and then once the world starts to become a, a much smaller place, you know, we'll, we'll obviously talk about... The trains, which yeah. is the thing that sort of brings it in, that it, it actually really mattered.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think the Romans weren't bothered about time at all, really. They, they seem to have had very minimal interest in the idea of hours. Mm. You know, they, that for them it was like morning, afternoon, bedtime. That was pretty much it. We know that the in early medieval Europe, it's the hours of prayer the monks did. They're called the canonical hours. And they're still, you know, Catholic, mm-hmm. still monks and so forth, still have them, you know, the Vespers and Compline and so forth allowed And those were signalled by bells for the monks and nuns so that you'd you'd get up at 3am, 6am, 9am, 12, all the way through the day doing these various prayers. And they were signalled by bells. And so that was the first time probably that medieval peasants actually had an understanding of time elapsing because they would hear the bells and go, oh, okay, three hours has passed. But the actual clock itself as an invention, a public clock, didn't really reach Europe until the twelve hundreds and they were very clunky. They'd been put in these huge, beautiful bell towers, but they were really badly designed and they lost a huge amount of time, they're very inaccurate, very expensive to build. And then in the fourteenth century you get this revolutionary movement where Islamic scientist in Syria comes up with a way of aligning his kind of astrolabe to the, the polar mm-hmm. the longitude, and latitude and so forth. So he he can actually get equal hours. Because until that time, this is a very strange thing to get your head around, until that time, an hour was longer in the summer Mm -hmm. than it was in the winter, which is very hard to explain to people. But it's because at the time, people thought that the sun orbited the Earth. Mm -hmm. So that's immediately an issue. They thought that the sun was lower in the winter and then rose up and then came yeah so it sort of orbited around the earth but not around the equator but yeah. rather a kind of ecliptic plane mm-hmm. almost and so they saw that uh, in the summer your hour was about 75 minutes long and in the winter it was 45 minutes mm-hmm. long so it's only in, in the 14th century that it, in the muslim world you get this evolution of scientific understanding that says hang on a minute no we can actually create 60 minute hours so let's apply that and then you start to see in the 14th century in europe these ideas coming in 60 minute hours coming in and, and increased trade and, and better timekeeping then Gives birth to a new type of timekeeping, which then gives birth to a more kind of commercialism,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and then in the 1600s you get Galileo discovering the pendulum effect, and that ends up in uh, being incorporated into clocks because the pendulum, it's known as the seconds pendulum; it can swing for an exact second, which gives you much better timekeeping. Which is when they invent the grandfather clock, uh, and the grandfather clock, you know, is this lovely, beautiful clock encased in wood, you can put it in your house. So suddenly you now have accurate timekeeping that people can have in their home. So in the 17th century, people start to have time in their houses. It's It's not just in the public square anymore. It's not just sort of civic time. It's now personal time. But you're absolutely right that actually the importance of national time is really a 19th century invention, mm-hmm. the Industrial Revolution, because it's about it's the trains and telegraphs making the world much smaller than it was mm-hmm. before. It's the speed of, of communication. And the key thing there is, as the evolution of the train system, to come back to William Willett, actually, yeah. he'd been putting forward this case in 1908 or so, saying, look, let's all change our clocks eight times a year. It's going to be fantastically good fun. <laughs> you know, We'll do in tiny increments of 15 minutes. And people are saying, no, that sounds madness. Why would we do that? <laughs> we've only just set on a uniform time. Mm-hmm. And what they meant by that was London was nine minutes ahead of Bristol because the sun rose you know, later in the west than mm-hmm. it did in the east. So you would get on a train from London to Bristol and you would arrive nine minutes early, but not early because you were <laughs> everyone else would, it was, it was... So your clock was wrong when you arrived. And people would look at you and go, well, no, it's, no, it's four o'clock, what are you mm-hmm. talking about? So there was this enormous problem that because of the speed of trains and then the telegraph machine as well, that suddenly different places were on different time systems and so it got really, really elaborate and really complicated. And so they brought in railway time, which is this uniform time across Britain, and then it became standardized across the whole world in the eighteen sort of eighties I think it is, where people went, Right, Greenwich Mean Time is the that's the the set time and they then created our system of fifteen degrees of, of longitude mm-hmm. to create time zones across the world. And America ended up with five time zones and we had one. So the industrial revolution forces humanity to deal with time in a much more interesting way and then william Willett says aha brilliant lovely now we can now we've mastered time let's mm-hmm. let's use it for our own purposes let's let's harness it like you would uh, an ox in your field let's have more sunlight and some people say no that's, bad. that's a crazy idea why would we do that and then he died and then the germans decided that she was a great
1: a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend
0: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care.
3: idea. Because it was 1915, the First World War was raging on, and the Germans realised that actually, if you adopted the system, you'd have a whole extra hour of daylight, during which time you wouldn't have to be burning all that fuel for light and heat, because it would still be daylight. And all that fuel could then go to the war effort. So the Germans were like, this is brilliant, we'll adopt it, we'll put all that fuel to the war effort, we'll win the war. <laughs> and so a month later, Britain went, oh, hang on a minute, the Germans have <laughs> adopted this system, and it's a British system, and it's terribly embarrassing, but we should probably do something about it. And so they then adopted the system. So Willett had died literally a few months ago, a complete laughing stock. Suddenly now his idea is being adopted across the world, It's being picked up in Australia and America and Canada and Germany and Britain. And so suddenly daylight saving time is this new hot thing. They get rid of Willett's idea of doing tiny increments. They just do one hour. They just say, right, well, clock's forward at one hour. That'll make sense. The massive problem then in America is America is too big. So it's got all these time zones. Because of Sanford Fleming, this railway engineer who's, who's put forward this idea of having time zones at 15 degrees of longitude, they have more than one time zone. And so the American government says, OK, guys, we're a federal nation. i tell you what... Instead of having national time, because that's madness, that's (laughs) not going to work, because it'll be dark in California and it'll be light in New York, let's have federal time where you'll get to decide what time you're in. And the problem is the states then said to the cities and towns, guys, you can decide as well. You can opt in or opt out of daylight saving time. And so you ended up with an entire nation opting in or opting out of daylight saving time on a whim, depending on where you were. And in the 1960s, until 1966, there were entire places where... you could be in a different time zone if you stepped across the road. Idaho, for example, famously there were there were shops in the same street that were on different time zones. It'll be nine a.m. in the corner store, and if you wanted to buy some milk next door, it'll be ten a.m. there. And so it was this sort of chaotic system. So chaotic, in fact, there's a there was a stretch of road. And there was a bus route between Steubenville and Moundsville. It's a thirty-five mile bus route. So you probably did it in I don't know forty minutes or something. During that time, you went through seven time zones, and that's just madness, obviously that's absolute madness but this is the problem, is that because town, cities states were all on different time and they got to decide themselves there was this complete lack of any kind of sense or logic to it and so that persisted until 1966 but amazingly I discovered this week, I didn't even realise this but I discovered this week, America was still trying to work out daylight saving time in 2007, Obama passed the legislation seven years ago or something, trying to work out how many months there should be daylight saving time. So America is still trying to work out how many hours there should be of light, how many of darkness. So time is this thing that still (laughs) bedevils us. And actually, every year in British Parliament, there are still politicians who stand up and say we should have more daylight saving time Mm -hmm. or less daylight saving time. And and people stand up and say no, because it causes more road deaths in Scotland because it's darker for an extra hour. So time is this constant argument, and it has been for thousands of years.
2: to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and today I'm talking to Greg Jenner and we're talking about his book A Million Years in a Day, a curious history of everyday life from the stone age to the phone age. And Greg, we've gone up, the alarm clock's gone up and we're out of bed, <laughs> desperate for the loo. So yeah. let's talk about <laughs> the the history of the growth of... The gradual need for a uh, organised system of sewers, I guess. Yeah. Where did we first start having you a know, collective need to manage our own waste? It's a good question.
3: It's one of the great questions of civilisation, is where do you put all the crap? Mm. Because humans produce a lot of it. We, we urinate several times a day. We defecate at least once a day if you're healthy. And, of course, if you've got a community of 10,000 people, which is a modest-sized town, that's a huge amount of waste every day mm. and over a year, you know. It's it's really gonna pile up. Ironically, in the Neolithic, they literally did pile up. That's pretty much the answer initially. In in Katalhöyük in um, Turkey, which is the first town that's uh, about 9,000 years old, they literally just piled it up next to their houses. a huge midden pile that someone presumably had to go up and rake every now and then. So. Midden is
2: such a lovely word. <laughs> it's a lovely
3: and very nice sort of Anglo-Saxon word, isn't it, midden? But actually, when you think about it, a steaming pile of crap is, is not quite as delightful. And so that wasn't a very effective system. That's undoubtedly led to a very high level of, of disease And so you then see a a sea change against that when you get the emergence of the much more sophisticated Bronze Age. So the Neolithic is people settling down for the first time, it's the the farming revolution, it's people settling in a a landscape, building towns, um, domesticating animals, growing their crops and creating communities. The Bronze Age is when that extends into a much more of a, a trade network where you have towns and cities, actually very powerful cities, and in those cities there are more of a stratified hierarchy, you've got reigning monarchs, there are castes of people, there are priests perhaps, and and even maybe hierarchy of working labourers. So, you know, the Bronze Age is where you get modern life as we know it now, really. And in Bronze Age Pakistan, they are the first people to really come up with a solution to this poo problem so the Harappans they're called the Harappan civilization. they built a sort of network of various cities quite a lot of cities and they're named after the first one to be excavated so Harappa was the first to be discovered and excavated and they had fantastically civilised sanitation infrastructure they had Subterranean, or well, maybe not quite subterranean, but they had essentially sewer channels that r- ran across the whole city network, and each home was connected to them. So you would have runoff pipes from upstairs and downstairs, and you could have toilets emptying into them that would be manually flushed with water. You know, you t- you'd tip water in yourself, but you'd still be flushing down into a sewer, mm-hmm. which is tremendously advanced. And this meant that, of course, all the the effluent was, was taken away from the homes and, and houses and, and out to much safer territory, away f- into cesspits away from where people were eating and sleeping and drinking. So it's much, much healthier. And then, of course, they also had a huge number of wells and, and water resources where they could get clean drinking water. So they kept their drinking water and their sewage separate, which is a brilliant idea. And bizarrely, actually, the Harappans pretty much were the, the height of, of sanitation infrastructure and they just they keep
2: cropping up through the book. I don't know because I've never heard of these these. Yeah, they're really interesting.
3: It's it's what's you know you might call the Indus Valley. Mm-hmm. So it's it's you know, obviously at the time there is no Pakistan, it, it, it's sort of the Indian subcontinent, the but they're the Indus Valley and they just they kinda of got it really early on. This is about four and a half thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. They're around the same time as Egypt. And their standard of of hygiene and sanitation was was unmatched really until the 19th century you know the Romans didn't get as close really mm-hmm. I mean, the Romans had underground sewers they had uh, Rome itself had extraordinary this huge underground sewer system that was so big you could sail a boat through it. But it didn't really connect to all the houses and it was obviously the, the capital city itself but other cities in the empire didn't have it. So the Harappans got there very early and then bizarrely no one really ever matched that standard again until really Basil Jet in the 19th century invented the underground intersecting sewer system. So it's this bizarre thing. You assume history gets better, like people <laughs> progress and evolve and learn their lessons but actually... You kind of want to go back four and a half thousand years if you need a poo. You know, if you get in a time machine and you need a poo, that's sort of where you want to go, actually.
2: For centuries, there's been people collecting mm. people's effluence. Industries built around yeah. using that for other purposes.
3: Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things that the <laughs> horrible history is the program I you know spent six years making obviously kids love all the poo and wee facts but actually they're really interesting they're really important because you're absolutely right I think we forget that waste products were once tremendously useful mm. fertilizers or medical products so the Greeks uh, had people called coprologoi who uh, poo collectors, that was their job, they would you know, dig it out and sell it to the farmers as fertiliser for the mm. fields and they would grow the food and you'd eat the food and poo it out and start again You know, it's, a sort of a, it's a lovely cycle and um, and the Romans, they had quite large jars at the end of every street that you would urinate into or you, know, you would bring down your potty and you'd empty the, the urine into it and of course urine was a fundamental part of the tanning process for making mm. leather uh, it could be used in medicine the Romans gargled mouthwash of, of urine, imported all the way from Portugal
2: Is there anything particularly good about I'm know. not
3: sure why Portugal. I've always wondered that, but no. Apparently, it was particularly strong. Apparently, it was a sort of really clearly there's something about the Portuguese diet or something that you know they, the Romans particularly approved of. <laughs> so these waste products were a fundamental part of, of of ordinary daily life. And the Egyptians they cooked with mm. excrement. They would dry it out and use it as fuel for their fire. The Anglo Saxons were given um, cow crap for Christmas by their lords. You know, so if you're a peasant, you'd be given cow crap for, or sheep dung as an actual Christmas gift, as your bonus. And you could use it to make pottery, you could um, use it to repair the walls of your house, you know, wattle and daub. You know, it was really useful stuff. So I think we wrinkle our noses now and go, "Oh, yeah, disgusting. But actually, it was once rather useful, and, and so people have always found ways of employing it.
2: Well, also, moving on in the book slightly, one of the, I guess one of the reasons why we often think of, you know, waste in connection with disease yeah. and there's a disease vector but one of the interesting things that comes out of the book is, is the fact that you know, people obviously used to have a much different relationship with hygiene mm. and cleanliness and in fact amazingly it seems that cleanliness was something that was frowned upon at some point. Yeah
3: the weird thing is, is that as you say at different stages in, in human society people kind of went guys we're not washing anymore. Agreed? And you sort of think why? <laughs> it's not a very good idea but actually there was a sort of sound empirical logic behind it or at least in one instance there was. The one that I tend to tell people most, I think, is that early Christianity rejected washing. So uh, the early church fathers like St. Jerome, they kind of said that washing was sinful because it's, it's the sin of vanity and pride. And also they'd been watching, you know, they'd been growing up in the Roman Empire. They, they kind of were surrounded by the Romans going to their fantastically huge Roman baths, these vast complexes where they had hot water and cold water and mm-hmm. steam baths. And, and everyone gets naked and it's all rather... It's a little bit erotic, there's too much nudity going on, it's a bit too much fun. And so these early church fathers are like, well, we're not going to be Romans, we're not Romans, we're Christians. So whatever they do, we'll do the opposite. And so you end up, actually, bizarrely enough, with early Christian monks and nuns embracing something called elusia, which is holy grime. It's this idea of sacred filth that you, you you know you don't wash. And of course, ironically, Christianity is the only religion of the five major religions that doesn't have a policy on washing. In Islam, washing is absolutely fundamental. Absolutely, you've got to wash, you know, you've got to do it every time you go to the toilet. And so they found Christians disgusting and filthy. They were like, What are you doing? You haven't washed. And it's interesting that different societies at the same time found each other, particularly, you know, it's, the Saxons found the Vikings very, very clean. The Saxons mm. were like, These Vikings wash at least once a week. What, they, what are they doing? And the Vikings would then go to the Byzantine world where they'd meet, you know, the kind of the Greek Romans, and they were washing even more Mm -hmm. and then the vikings would go and meet muslim traders and merchants who'd say these vikings are filthy they only wash once a week what's going on here so it's very interesting that at the same time in history different people had different attitudes about how much washing should and shouldn't be done but the really surprising story i think is that in the 1600s washing goes out of fashion for a scientific reason It's Mm -hmm. it's nothing to do with sin or vanity or nudity it's this new a kind of empiricism of of early medicine where they, they're saying well okay we think the body works by the skin is vulnerable to disease you know because of the 1600s is the, is the great era of plague mm-hmm. and, and the sort of great thinkers are thinking okay well clearly plague is getting in the body somehow it must be getting in through the skin so what you need, I think, are probably, is probably a, a good, healthy sheen of dirt to block up those vulnerable... You know, it's like the Death Star, when you know, Luke is trying to look for the, the little hole to put his proton torpedo in. It's, it's the idea you need to block up all of your little vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with these great early scientists, these fantastically clever men, like Francis Bacon, coming up with these mad safety baths. Mm-hmm. So Bacon came up with a 26-hour safety bath, where he said, OK, if you need a bath, then you need to do it under medical supervision... And to do so, you first you need to sort of encase yourself in oils and saffron up a manda and pimander and wrap yourself, and then you have to bathe in it for twenty six hours, and only then are you safe from the water. And, and the King of France, Henry the sends for his finance minister, the duke de Célie and he gets a message back saying, "Oh, he'd love to come, but unfortunately, he's in the bath." And the King says, "Oh my word, God, is he all right? God, I mean, I'm, guys, let's let's send everyone. Let's make sure he's all right because he's in the bath. He could die any minute. You know, this is dangerous." So you have this bizarre thing where everyone's running around terrified of washing. James I of England and Scotland, James VI of Scotland, James I of England, he refused to wash any part of his body apart from his fingertips. Because instead what people did was they this was the the era of linen. Linen mm. had come into fashion. Yeah,
2: then linen is introduced and, that's and right. that also is becomes a reason not to wash.
3: Well that's it because I mean linen's a very ancient fabric. We know that Ramesses uh, the Great when he was discovered he was wrapped in linen and mm. actually uh, Tutankhamun was buried with 145 pairs of linen underpants, spare pants. So linen's a very ancient fabric, but in the 1600s it comes in as this revolutionary new exciting fabric because you can wash it and kind of bleach it back to whiteness really easily. Mm-hmm. So the theory is if you change your underwear all the time, you never need to wash beneath it. Mm-hmm. There's no need to wash. You just keep changing your underwear because they don't really understand... Well, they may understand it, but they don't care about sweat. They're not bothered about the idea of you accumulating your own internal grossness. <laughs> they just see dirt coming from an outside perspective. People smear themselves in sweet-smelling herbs and mm. uh, lavender and, you know, they, they don't stink necessarily. It's not I'm sure this is a time we would probably find obnoxious to our noses because we're not used to that kind of smell. But they, they probably smelled of, of roses and, and lavender and herbs and so forth because they're, they're wearing as much of this sweet-smelling stuff as possible to them. Mm do with this issue but they're not washing particularly or at least certainly not the aristocracy it's interesting we don't know necessarily what the poor people are doing maybe they're just washing like normal we don't know but the aristocracy are being advised by the doctors don't get in the bath it's dangerous and then of course you get again the, rev- the the revolutionary change away from this idea in the 18th century people start bathing again they think it's good for you they think water is you know, people start pointing out well God put water on this earth clearly he intended it for a reason mm-hmm. maybe it's good for you and then you get to the 19th century and you have people sort of loving bathing and you get the invention of the bathroom which is a brand new room that's invented in the early 1800s and the shower is invented in the late 1700s and Sir Charles Dickens is one of the first people in London to have a brand new bathroom and he has this state of the art shower put in so it's very funny every society in history has sort of had different attitudes mm-hmm. to hygiene and cleanliness and actually what defines clean it determines an awful lot of, based on what you think of as cleanliness as an idea Yeah. in Hinduism cowpats are holy they're sacred so there's a very famous sociologist he's an indian campaigner for for hygiene and so forth but in his childhood he'd touched someone from the the unclean caste of society you know um and untouchable and his grandmother had panicked because he touched someone and she thought maybe he would catch their innate whatever it was that he wasn't allowed to be and and to cure him of this she made him gargle cow shit and cow urine and to us we're thinking how is that better? You know, How is that a cure for touching a... You know, it's, it doesn't make any sense to us. But in their worldview, in that, in that religious context, that was a cure for dirt. So dirt, for us, we might think of it, having watched lots and lots of adverts for you know, detergents and, and personal <laughs> non-bio, we might think of dirt as bacteria. But actually, dirt is a cultural construct, yeah. and every society has a different meaning for what dirt is, what, what is dirty and what is clean. They're very much determined by who you are and where you're from. If you love the art of
2: listening to Resonance on the FM, go to the website and donate. Give some money and tell your mates.
3: We want to go digital and upgrade. We're volunteers,
2: we don't get paid. Show your love the way it counts. Send Send some some money, any amount.
3: Resonance 104.4 FM Fundraising Week the 9th to the 15th of February 2015. For more info, go to fundraiser.resonance.fm. I'm Charlotte Higgins, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
2: Let's skip forward a bit and, and get to a, a meal. and I want, I want to talk about well, food and drink, but not necessarily what we eat, but how we eat. How we've developed the rituals around eating together the meal being a you know a thing where people come together and eat and that's sort of that's developed over over a long time hasn't it
3: yeah I mean I think for me I think the surprising thing perhaps maybe not surprising at all but the the crucial thing I think is it's very very old I think eating together I mean the evidence for it is difficult to find because obviously there's you can't really find the archaeology of group sharing food other than of course you'll find butchered carcasses of lots of meat in one place and you, you can sort of say right okay well this is clearly a big meal was eaten here and we know for example the Iron Age Hill Fort at Hambledon Hill there seem to have been these big old parties these huge parties where a lot of people would gather a lot of animals were slaughtered and they would eat a massive amount of food in one go and then they would sod off again and they wouldn't they weren't living there there were no houses there's no domestic buildings it's pretty much a sort of party venue it's almost like Glastonbury everyone turns up has a great time and heads home so we know that there's archaeological evidence for these sort of feasting culture and actually I think a lot of anthropologists and paleontologists would probably say that you know what it's kind of crucial in the ice age in the frozen times of the stone age when people are very very they're struggling of course for survival against very difficult conditions Mm -hmm. Eating together is probably a really integral part of community organisation, of of keeping people together, of of providing enough food for for the weak and the vulnerable. Because we have archaeological evidence, for example, for those with... Perhaps um, disabilities or people who may have lost their teeth who would have to be fed by others. They wouldn't mm-hmm. necessarily be as good at hunting and gathering. They might not be as good at being able to chew. And yet we know that they're living into old age. They're being cared for. So mm-hmm. you can find evidence of care, mm-hmm. I think, in love going back a long time. And certainly when you know, look in the Roman world, they thought dining was very much a social custom. You know, the word... Convi- they called it convivium living together but also our, our word companion mm-hmm. derives from the latin someone you share your bread with the idea that you you break bread together you share together it's a very important thing mm-hmm. and, and the babylonians in, in ancient mesopotamia they they shared their salt and their oil and their wine and this was a very important part of the meal and you know if you struck a business deal you sh- you would share oil with that person so In the same way we would have a handshake when you strike a deal with someone, Mm -hmm. say, I'll buy your car, shake your hand. For them, sharing food and wine or oil was this solemn ritual moment of saying, right, you know, this is us bonded now. Mm -hmm. So food has always had a very important part of that. And, of course, mealtime had been a way of... Of orchestrating these these kind of rituals, and of course we still have these rituals. If you go for a meal with your friends in a pub or a, well, a rest maybe a, maybe a, a restaurant, you know, throw a bit of money behind it. Let's go to a restaurant. <laughs> You'll sit down at the table, and you might find yourself just very momentarily wondering where you should sit, yeah. you know, and if you should do a kind of boy girl boy girl mm-hmm. thing, or who's going to sit at the head of the table. There might be a moment of panic where you think, all right, well where, you know, and that's we will laugh about it because it's with your friends and so forth. But these moments tell us an awful lot about the history of that etiquette there's, there used to be very very strict rules about yeah. who sat next to whom in in Georgian society. You know, in if you read Jane Austen novels, the order in which people get to sit down is really important. It's called the system of precedence, mm-hmm. and it's all based on rank. So you know the sister of a duke outranks the wife of an earl, and you know, and so you have this mad system where you may have twenty people around a dining table, but they don't sit down at the same time. Mm-hmm. They sit down in order of who's more important than the next person.
2: And so there's also you talk about uh, people have sat around a table. But there are there's some people at one end of the table who are definitely of lower status, mm. and so it's not just that they sit down last, but they get different food. like They're literally made to know throughout the meal that you are of a lower That's status. That's right, yeah.
3: In Roman banqueting, uh, Roman banquets can be quite large, you can get sometimes 25, 30 people, in, mm. and uh, Roman banquets are based in uh, the triclinium system where you have these low couches that you would lean sideways on. You might have two or three people sharing a couch. So they're effectively spooning each other, but the way in which they were orchestrated was was kind of a U shape. Mm-hmm. So you might find yourself quite far away from the head of the from the guy throwing the party, maybe. Mm-hmm. And if you were quite far away, it's probably deliberate. You were probably put there because you're not very interesting or you're not very powerful, and you might well be served a second class. It's it, almost like being on a plane mm-hmm. and sort of having first class over there, and you can sort of see it. You can <laughs> smell the delicious uh, chicken that's being cooked, and then you get this rubbery lasagna, and you think, "Hang on a minute, why why do I not get the chicken?" And it's that idea that actually you'd be... You might be invited, but you were sort of an afterthought. And so actually the food was more of a... It would be paraded in front of you and you'd sort of see it go past and think, oh, I kind of want that. So, yeah, there is this, there's this strange idea that we don't always necessarily serve the same food to our... You know, when we invite people to our parties, we would serve everyone the same thing. Yeah. But actually that wasn't always the case. And in the 19th century there was... A tremendous problem with with middle class people maybe inviting people to their dinner party who were who wealthier or more important mm-hmm. than them, and then you had a huge issue because then you had to match their standards mm-hmm. so you had to make sure your servants and staff were good enough, the food was good enough, and you know that you were allowed to talk to these people so there 's all sorts of really tense moments of panic and, and Social accidentally talk to the absolutely yeah exactly hugely hugely dangerous that you might talk to a duke without you know really so it's funny yeah when you see people sit down together in a (laughs) restaurant or when you see them arguing about the bill trying to work out who pays what a lot of these things go back a long time actually
2: there's lots more stuff that you cover in this book that we've not got time to look at and Sorry. I want to finish off <laughs> it took us ages to get out of bed but I, wa- I want to go back to bed and, and finish off at the end of the book um, and I want to talk about again this is something we don't necessarily think about that often but just the, the evolution of the bed and mm-hmm. how we sleep and what position we sleep in and how long we sleep though. These are things that have changed a lot again over human history. Yeah,
3: the most surprising thing, I think, while researching the book, was that archaeologists have very recently discovered the world's earliest evidence for beds. And it's really old. It's 77,000 years ago. And these are effectively mattresses woven from plant fibre in in a cave in South Africa. And what had happened effectively is that the archaeologists have found burned layers... Of this vegetation, so what's going on is people clearly have have woven a bed, slept in it for a while, and then it's got infested with Mm -hmm. insects or they've dropped their dinner in it, and so they burn it and weave a new one. And so the archaeologists have found these sort of layers and layers and layers of previous beds Mm -hmm. that have been set fire to, and um, a new one planked on top. Uh, So that's really interesting because you think, okay, cool, that's beds are old then; they're really old, and of course they are. Well, why wouldn't they be? Humans need to sleep; it's a biological imperative. Mm -hmm. But somehow we don't imagine sleeping. We kind of think of beds as very modern. But yeah. They've always been there. And at Scarabrai in Orkney, we know that that they had beds, some stone beds there. They look quite solid and quite sturdy, but they're they're proper actual beds. So that's very that's five thousand years ago. Proper beds there. And in Egypt, as you say, the posture in the Egyptian beds, the aristocracy slept in elevated beds like we do, higher off the ground, and mm-hmm. the, the poor slept in cushions on the floor. But the aristocracy slept in beds that sloped weirdly so you they weren't horizontal like ours they kind of sloped downwards so they needed a footrest at the bottom to stop you sliding out and you also slept on a hard pillow that was carved from from stone or from mahogany or from antler or from bone or it was to protect your very complicated hairdo so you didn't sleep on a comfy cushion like us you would sleep on a kind of rigid almost like even an mri machine or something so that's quite weird because you You sort of think, actually, the peasants got off quite comfortably there. It sounds like they had the best time of it. And the Greeks, again, you know, Greeks and Romans, they, depending on how wealthy you are, you might sleep in a very low truckle bed, or you might sleep in just some hay, or you might sleep in a very expensive, beautifully carved bed. It's hard to know. We don't really have many Roman beds. And then in the Middle Ages, medieval beds could be well non-existent or very elaborate you know kings and queens for example had these beautiful huge beds that could be dismantled and taken away because kings and queens would be itinerant they, mm-hmm. would, they would travel to different castles so you would, like an ikea bed you'd dismantle it and take it off with you and put it back together but if you were living in a castle but you were part of the servants or you know you worked in the kitchen you would likely sleep amongst lots of other people just in a heap, in the middle of the Great Hall, you know, probably just throw down some hay sacks and you'd all sleep together. Mm-hmm. And we know this cause, because, strangely, there were lovely travel books published for people who wanted to travel to other lands and learn the language and so forth. And, and so they would have guidebooks, books sort of saying, could you please stop kicking me in the face, please? Or stop snoring you're annoying me. Mm-hmm. Translated into Dutch or into French or into Italian or, or into English. from the. So we know that people are having to sleep En masse with strangers mm-hmm. and bafflingly even in the 1600s 1700s we know it in America people are sleeping not just a whole family in the bed but strangers would get in with them it's a practice called quiesting which is a Dutch word where if someone had visited the town and they didn't have enough room in the, in the inn they could pay to stay in the family bed with you so you might have some bloke in town on business he would get in the bed with you and the kids and he'd snuggle up under the warmth and and we know that well we think that the nursery rhyme 10 in the bed the little Mm -hmm. one said roll over comes from this tradition of pigging which is where a whole family would sleep in a bed Mm -hmm. which was actually common in rural Ireland and Scotland until the 20th century
2: well while we're here we're quickly running out of time, but just tell us to finish off about the idea of bundling, which is a, a related <laughs> phenomenon. So
3: bundling was a technique to try and stop people shagging. Effectively, you would—you um, you might have a young couple who were uh, courting, and so the parents were—they uh, were okay with the, a man visiting and staying in the house, and perhaps there wasn't a spare room yet because this is a time when there aren't individual bedrooms. But there isn't—you don't want them sleeping next to each other in the same bed so they would do this thing called bundling where they'd effectively put them in straight jackets so you'd be lying next to each other in bed you would sleep together but you would be effectively straight jacketed and then they'd put a bundling board between you like a large wooden board dropped down between you so you couldn't see each other and you couldn't touch each other you were technically sharing a bed and it was sort of a technique to try and prevent (laughs) premarital sex it wasn't that effective because we know that about 30% of people who got married in the 18th century were actually were already pregnant women were already pregnant by the time they got. To their wedding day, so actually, maybe maybe it wasn't that good, but you know it's worth a try, isn't it? <laughs> That's
2: where we'll have to leave it. So I've been talking to <laughs> Greg Jenner, and we've been talking about his book, A Million Years in a Day: A Curious History of Everyday Life from the Stone Age to the Phone Age. Greg, thank you very much for coming in and telling me about it.
3: Thank you for having me. <laughs> You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
2: This episode of
0: Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM.
1: The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms.
3: You can find old interviews, some great journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.